Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Alrighty. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. We're going to continue our study in the book of Romans. Before we read, I want to invite you to do something. Um, several months ago, uh, I had the privilege of officiating uh, the funeral for Edna Scott. Um, her husband's here today. Uh, it was a great privilege to, to do that. And um, Edna had, and, and Richard had been a part of a church where this was their custom. And I didn't really realize that at the time, but as I opened the funeral service, I read from the scriptures, I think I read from Psalm 23, and as I finished reading the scripture, I said these words, I said, this is the word of God for the people of God. And the whole congregation, without my prompting, responded, thanks be to God. And I think that's right. I think there's something really right about that, um, because as I've told you before, this section of Romans is challenging. And by challenging, I don't necessarily mean difficult to understand as much as I mean that it's going to shatter paradigms. It's going to challenge ways of thinking that might have been shaped not so much by the scriptures themselves, but maybe by tradition, even by culture, uh, as it relates to the gospel, as it relates to Jesus, who he is, what he's done, uh, what it means that God is sovereign. You know, those are big things. And when we, we wrestle with those things and we let the Word of God speak to us about those things, sometimes our way of thinking is going to be challenged, to put it mildly. And there might be a temptation to sort of push back and go, nah, I'm not sure about that. But as I've told you many times before, we don't judge the Bible around here. The Bible judges us. Amen? So it's right for us when it's said, this is the Word of God. For the people of God, we can practice it. Now, it's a little weak. I'm going to read the scriptures, and I hope you do better, all right? I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. We got through verse 7, didn't I, last week? But I'm going to, I'm going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read to verse 16. Paul writes and says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Who are your kinsmen, Paul? They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all, excuse me, are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. 
For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, just that word just means choice, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, that's interesting, should, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is the word of God for the people of God. Holy Spirit, be the teacher and preacher today. Give us ears to hear. Let us receive with thanks the bread of life for the good of your kingdom, for your glory, and for the enrichment of our souls. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's talk, let's review just a little bit. The, what is the point of Romans chapter 9? What's Paul after? What's he trying to do? What question is he answering? And this is what we said last week. I think the main point of chapter 9 is in verse 6. The word of God has not failed. The word of God has not failed. Why is that the question? Romans chapter 8 reaches an emotional peak, right? I mean, it, it gets to heights such as there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It reaches a height such as the present sufferings of this world are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to come. It reaches heights as all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then the big climactic uh, doxology, if you will, that says nothing will separate us from the love of God. We ended chapter 8 on a high. But then chapter 9 seems to fall off the cliff emotionally, doesn't it? We go from all those great promises to Paul's unending, unceasing sorrow and anguish for his kinsmen, the Jews, who are cut off from Christ, he says. Why, why, is, that, why is that at the forefront of Paul's mind? Because here's the question. Paul, all of those promises that you've given us sound awesome, but can we trust them? Can we trust the promises of God? Can we bank on them when we consider the fact that Israel, God's chosen people who were given the covenants, they were given the law, they were given the specific way to worship God, they were given promises, a promise of blessing, a promise of a piece of land. They were promised also that from that bloodline would come the Christ. All these incredible promises, all this initiative by God towards his people, and yet, by and large, not every individual Jew, but by and large, the nation of Israel has rejected their Messiah. So, Paul, can we trust the promises of God as new covenant believers? I think that's the question. And Paul's answer is definitive. 
God's word has not failed. How do we know that, Paul? Well, he says, let's read it again, verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said to Abraham and Sarah, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. Simply put, Paul says, the promises of God don't apply to a nation as a whole, but they apply only to the specific people that God chose. In other words, God's promises are anchored to his sovereign choice, not genetic heritage. That's Paul's point. And he gives us exhibit A, Ishmael and Isaac. We talked about that last week, okay? God, Abraham had two kids, two sons, Ishmael, by his wife's slave, Hagar, and then later on by miracle, because Abraham and Sarah were advanced in years, Sarah was barren, they had the promised son, Isaac. Isaac was the child of promise, not Ishmael. So now we could insert a question between verses 9 and 10. Okay, Paul, we get that. The promises of God are not applied based on genetic heritage. They are applied to those whom God chose. So what's the basis, Paul, for God's choosing? Why would God choose Isaac over Ishmael? And if we're thinking about this, if we're tracking with the story, we went over the story of Ishmael and Isaac, Abraham and Sarah last week. If we only had the example of Ishmael and Isaac, there are some assumptions we could make, okay? Because here's what we know. Ishmael was the child of Abraham and Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian slave girl. So Ishmael was not a pure-blooded Jew. Isaac was. Isaac was the child of Abraham and Sarah, pure-blooded. So we might go, oh, well, I get it. God chose Isaac Because Ishmael was not pure. He was not part of the bloodline. An Egyptian slave girl was his mom. So that's why God chose him. Or we might assume, you know, that when Isaac was born, Ishmael was about 13 to 15 years old. So we might conclude also, well, Ishmael must have turned out to be a real dirtbag. All right? He wasn't cleaning his room. He wasn't making up his bed. He, he back-talked to Sarah. You know, he must have just really turned out to be a bad kid, and so God chose Isaac over Ishmael. I think because of those assumptions we might make, Paul offers the example of Jacob and, Ishmael, uh, Jacob and Esau, and it is incredibly potent. Let's look at it. Verse 10. And not only so, so not only do we see an example of God's sovereign choice in Ishmael and Isaac, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So that right there addresses the bloodline issue. Isaac and Rebekah, both pure-blooded Jews, had twins. She conceived twins, Jacob and Esau. So there's no issue of bloodline here. You with me? All right, let's keep reading. Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. 
So this is not an issue of works, is it? They haven't even come out the womb yet. This is not about, you know, probably the primary human argument that we could make for God's sovereign choice, his purpose of election, might be on the basis of good or evil deeds. But Paul says, look, Jacob was chosen before they were even born, so this is not an issue of works. Let's keep reading. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. I'll come back to that. She was told, Rebecca was told, while the twins were in her room, the older will serve the younger. So this is not an issue of birth order either. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to you and I, all right? But in these days, the firstborn was everything. The older was always served by the younger. The older always got the blessing. The older always got the rights. The older always got the inheritance. The older was always the heir. And God just stands that whole thing up on its head and says, nope. The older will serve the younger. So if God's choice of Jacob over Esau was not based on bloodline, it was not based on works, and it was not based on birth order, what's it based on? Let's go back to verse 11. I think that's where the answer is. <clears throat> Though they were not yet born... And had done nothing, either good or bad. Here's the purpose. In order that God's purpose of election or choice might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying that God is completely and totally free. God can and will do whatever he pleases. And it's always right, it's always holy, and it's always perfect. God is not bound or obligated to anyone or anything. God, there is no person, there is no entity in the universe which he created that can hold any power or sway over him whatsoever. It's quiet in here. God is completely free to choose whatever he wants to choose. That's the first point. God is sovereign. And if we're going to celebrate that, if we're going to herald that, if we're going to recognize that the Bible teaches us this about God, we've got to play the tape all the way out and look at it and stare at it and be in awe. God is sovereign, and that means he can do whatever he wants. And it's always right. Now, if that puts the fear of God in you, good. Don't dumb God down. Don't try to put him in a box. Don't try to tie him to a leash and put him in your back pocket. It's not who he is. It is prideful of us. It's prideful and arrogant for us to let our tendency towards entitlement to inform the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the judgment of God. He doesn't owe us anything. 
He's completely sovereign, and he's completely free. Now, to sort of add to that or, or to further clarify it, Paul makes this statement. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now, we've been tracking with Paul for quite some time through the book of Romans. And we should be familiar with that phrase, not because of works. Now, when we see that, we might think, because of what we've read in Romans thus far, that Paul might finish that sentence with this, not because of works, but because of faith. But that's not what he says, is it? Not because of works, but because of him who calls. This is huge. Because not only was Jacob chosen over Esau before they were born and before either one of them had any opportunity to do anything good or evil, they, he was also chosen before either one of them had an opportunity to be born, grow up, and demonstrate faith. You with me? What does that tell us? This is so huge, people. Faith is not a merit that we present to God. We don't earn God's grace by producing faith. It's God's gracious call that awakens faith. And this is all over our Bibles. It's all over it. Let me just give you a few examples. John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said, no one, we, we, we quote this all the time, don't we? And I wonder if we've really thought about it. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one comes to Jesus except the Father draws or calls. Here's another one, John 10, chapter, verse 24 so the Jews gathered around him, talking about Jesus, and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, just say it. Just tell us, right? We're tired of the suspense. We're tired of all the vagueness. Quit being cryptic, Jesus. Just say it. Look at what he says to them. I told you. But you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. In other words, it's plain as the nose on your face. I'm the Christ. Now watch this statement. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Whoa. Notice that he did not say, you're not part of my flock because you don't believe. No, he said, you don't believe because you're not part of my flock. Verse 28. I... My sheep, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. We love to celebrate that last part, don't we? My sheep know me. My sheep know my voice. My Father's given them to me. No one will take them out of my hand. And all of us are in Christ. Read those words from Jesus, and we are washed. Right? 
Don't you want that? Don't you, don't you want to know that? Don't you want to hear your Savior say that? No one's going to take you out of my hand. But what's the basis upon which that promise is guaranteed? My Father gives them to me. My Father draws them. My sheep believe because they're my sheep. Here's one more. We've just gone through it in Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now watch the order. In order that he might be firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he called. He called. Paul would write and say, I preach Christ and him crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. In other words, when Paul preached, there were Jews that just went, uh-uh, and there were Gentiles that went, you're crazy, Paul. And then he makes this statement, but to those who are called, Christ the, the wisdom of God. Those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified. Why? Because the calling of God, God's gracious call awakens faith where we come to dependence on him and on his son Jesus Christ for our justification. We are saved by grace through faith. Right? So Paul says God's purpose of choice based on that he chose Jacob over Esau, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God is completely free. He's not obligated. He will do whatever he pleases. That jostles the soul, doesn't it? Let's keep going. Here's a big picture point on faith. Okay, we got to get this right. Faith is not a work we do. Faith is not a work we do. It is a fruit that is produced in us by God's grace. If you consider your salvation and your thought about salvation is this. If it were not for God's grace, I would be dead in my trespasses and sins. You're thinking rightly. If it were not for his gracious call, where would we be? That's the point that I think Paul is making. Jacob, Esau, is there any other way to see it? Before they were born, before they did any works, both from the bloodline, before they even have an opportunity to demonstrate faith, God says, Jacob I loved, Esau, I hate it. Now, what, what are we going to do with that? I mean, that's like, what, what? Is that in the Bible, Bradley? Are you sure? Like, is that, are we reading out of a bad translation here? That's what it says. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. What does that mean? That God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Many have concluded 
that this, you know, this, this quote comes from the Old Testament prophet Malachi. We're going to read it in just a minute. But many have concluded that this is a hyperbole, a statement of exaggeration that's not meant to be taken literally. Okay? Now, it's possible that there is some hyperbole going on here. Let me give you an example. Look at Luke chapter 14, verse 26 on the screen. These are the words of Jesus. And he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And it wasn't long after that that the Bible says, And many followed him no more. <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm not sure I'm going to stay in this sanctuary much longer. It, it, what's Jesus doing? Now, as, as, as is true with any singular vo uh, verse in Scripture, we've got to take it in context. We've got, to, we've got to understand what it is that Jesus is saying based on the context surrounding it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let me just tell you what, into what kind of conversation did Jesus make this statement that if you're going to follow me, you've got to hate your father, mother, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, second cousins, third cousins, and so on. Okay? Here's the point that Jesus is making to his disciples is that if you're going to be my disciple, i got to have all of you. There are going to be many things, and we know this, we know this, that are going to war for the throne of our hearts and affections. And in order to paint a picture of the gap that must exist if we're going to be his disciple, the gap that must exist between our affections for him and our affections for everyone and everything else, Jesus uses the exaggerated term of hate. Now, you read the whole narrative of Scripture, you understand that in no way does God expect us to literally, in an evil way, hate our father and mother. In fact, quite the opposite is true. Honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you, Right? But Jesus is using an exaggeration to paint an emotional picture of the fact that our love for him makes our love and affection for everything and everyone else pale by comparison to the point that we might use the exaggerated term of hate. That's a hyperbole that Jesus used. You with me? Is that what the prophet, God spoke through the prophet, is a hyperbole that in some way God loved Jacob more then he loved Esau. Well, let's not make assumptions. Let's look at it in context. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> Prophet writes, this is the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel. So this is a word from God to Israel, the nation, by Malachi. God says, I have loved you, you plural, talking about Israel, says the Lord. But you say, but Israel says back, how have you loved us? And look at God's response. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? In other words, these two are brothers, right? They're in the womb. They're twins. Esau's going to be born first. The Bible says that Jacob was holding on to his heel as he came out the womb. They're brothers. 
Equal playing field, right? Got their whole life ahead of them. Future is bright. Here's a narrative from our culture. Their future is whatever they want to make it, right? Here's what the Lord says. Yet, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, now Edom is the nation that came from Esau's line, the Edomites. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. I told you. We don't judge the Bible around here. The Bible judges us. And my job is to faithfully preach the word. Even if we struggle to digest it sometimes. What does it mean that Jacob, or God loved Jacob? At the very least, it means Jacob was chosen. And his line was chosen to be a part of God's covenant people. To Jacob would apply the promises. To Jacob and his descendants would be given the worship and the land. Right? To Jacob and his descendants would be given the blessing. And we see that blessing played out over and over again. Yes, Israel found themselves in all manner of difficulty, sometimes destruction because of their own sin. But time and time again, what did God do? He would deliver them. He would save them. He would restore them. They would fail him. They would suffer the consequences. And yet God would still come to him. Jacob himself grew up and did his own share of evil. You know what his name means? Deceiver. He was a crook. You wouldn't want to play Jacob in poker. And yet God chose him. So at the very least, at the very least, God loving Jacob means that he was chosen as a child of promise, just like Isaac. Now what does it mean that God hated Esau? Let's just look at what the text says. It says two things about Esau and his descendants. They will be called the wicked country. They're going to do evil. And if you know anything about history, the, the, the prophet Obadiah declared that it was the Edomites that were involved in the, first, the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem. So they're going to be called the wicked country and they will be called the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Under his wrath. Jacob grew up, like I said, and did his share of evil deeds. And yet Jacob was the one that God chose to rename Israel. And from his line, the Christ would come. Esau and his people were labeled as the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord's wrath would abide. Now, let me address the elephant in the room. Does this mean that Esau... And every individual descendant of his had no chance for saving fellowship with the living God. The truth is, I don't think that's clear here. And I don't think Paul is trying to make that point. 
I think the point that Paul is trying to make is that God is freely choosing Jacob over Esau because he's sovereign and according to his purpose of election, that it might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. What does that mean for Esau? I don't know. Esau and Jacob sort of reconciled. I went back and read that even this morning about Esau and Jacob meeting up and after all these years of turmoil and tension and there was some sense of reconciliation and love expressed between the two of them despite what had gone on in their history. I don't think Paul is here trying to say, look, Esau and every individual descendant of Edom had zero chance to come into saving fellowship with the living God. I don't think that's Paul's point. But the bottom line is, according to God's sovereign choice, his purpose of election, not according to works, but because of him who calls, he loved Jacob. And in the sense that Malachi describes for us, he hated Esau and his descendants. And we feel it coming up within us, don't we? That's not fair. We feel it. It's, it's, it's rising up. We, 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 we post that question underneath the comments. That's not fair, God. And Paul anticipates that. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Let me ask you a question. When you read the statement, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, what shocks you more? about that statement Jacob I loved or Esau I hated Esau I hated right I mean that that's I think where most of us would be we look at that and go what that's just shocking Jacob I loved Esau I hated that just Esau I, uh, Esau I hated I just I can't my, get my mind around that here's my question according to what we've learned in Romans thus far is that the part of that statement that should shock us? What should shock us the most? That God loves or that there are people who will experience his wrath? We're not universalists here, right? Everybody doesn't get the trophy. Only those in Christ will experience eternal life and everlasting joy with Jesus forever. So what should shock us more? Let, let me remind you. Romans chapter 5, if you want to flip back a few pages. Verse 12. <clears throat> Paul's already taught us this. We've been through this. Verse 12, chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Who's the one man that sin came through? Adam. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Now here's the shocker. Because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. This is Paul's point. In some strange and mysterious way, when Adam sinned, we did too. Because, and, and Paul's proof 
for that is this. Between Adam and Moses, when the law was given, there was a lot of people that were born and died, even though they didn't have the law. In other words, God's judgment over sin fell to all of Adam's descendants. And we might ask, why, Paul? Why in the world would God's judgment fall on people before they were ever born? Because in Adam, some strange way, when he sinned, everybody else did too. And we push back on that. We go, not only is that not fair, God, that's not possible. Nobody can sin in my place. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If no one can sin in your place, then no one can die for sin in your place either. Adam sinned for all. And that's why Christ had to come and die for all. Verse 15, 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, they didn't have a law or a rule to break like Adam did. Don't eat the tree, Adam. Don't eat from the tree. He broke the rule. He sinned. Death came. And everybody after him that was born sinned, and death was on them. But Adam, watch this, who was a type of the one who was to come. Who's the one to come? Jesus. Adam sinned for all, Christ came and died for all. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Paul writes in Ephesians and says, we are by nature children of Say it. Wrath. What should shock us more? Jacob I loved or Esau I hated? Jacob I loved. The fact that God, let me just ask this this way. Are you in overwhelming awe coupled with fear and trembling at the fact that God loves you? Are, are, are you? are you compelled to drop to your knees in gratitude when it is said by this was the love of God made manifest. Christ died. Are, are you, do you read the passage? Behold, what manner of love is this? That we should be called the children of God? Does that just cause you to go, what? See, I think, I think we have a tendency because of our sense of entitlement, our pride. We think that God is obligated to love us. He owes us something. I'm awesome sauce, right? 
He owes me love. Really? Does he? Yes, God is love. But it's only by grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's only by grace that his love is given to any of us. And I think sometimes we treat the love of God with contempt. We put it on the shelf in our emotional storage room, and it starts to collect dust. God loves me. Yeah, I know that. It starts collecting dust, and we, and we lose our sense of awe. And then our affection for God starts to wane. And then we get frustrated when our sin battles escalate. And I wonder what would happen for us if we allowed the Holy Spirit and the revelation of God's word. This is where Paul's going in chapter 12 to renew our minds. How might it transform us to realize that the shocking thing, the most shocking thing in all of the universe is that God would love sinners like you and me. That God would call us to himself and offer us grace that awakens faith so that we trust him, so that the free gift of the righteousness of Christ could be given to our filthy, dirty accounts. That that's the gospel that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. I know it jostles the soul. I know it rattles our cages. It, it makes us question our own selves and our existence in a way that maybe we haven't before because we think the world revolves around us and it just doesn't people and the joy of our salvation the lid on that the ceiling on that is blown away and our joy increases as we realize that I didn't deserve it I couldn't earn it and yet God loves me that's the shocking part of it all. Are you in awe of that? Are you overwhelmed by the grace of God to you? Paul says that by the Spirit, by the work of the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. We cry Abba because we know that in Christ, his wrath against sin, his just and righteous wrath against sin has been turned away from us. And, and, and the same as with the free gift of the righteousness of Christ comes the love of God as his children. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. It should sound strange to us. It should be shocking to us. It should awaken us to the fact that not because of obligation, but because of grace, we have been shown love. How amazing is the grace of God? What is man that you are mindful of him. Christianity, I said this last week, is not rooted 
in enthusiasm for humanity. It's rooted in enthusiasm for God and His Son, Jesus Christ. I, I want to be candid with you. I'm still wrestling through this. I read Romans 9. I told you last week, I said, I came to Romans 9 with fear and trembling because it's, it is the word of God for the people of God. And I'll be transparent enough with you to say, there are times when I read the Bible and I go, God, I don't like that. I don't like it. I know it's true. I believe it, but I don't like it. I don't know that God expects us to like everything that we learn about him right off the bat. You know? I think we want to, like I said, we want to come to church and we want to get a, we get a sermon that just tells, makes me feel better and then tells me how to go live better. And not that that's not here. My hope would be that you feel a million times more awe and joy over the fact that God loves you after reading, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Whatever that means, whatever that might mean, whatever the implications might be, the fact that God would demonstrate his love toward anyone should drive us to our knees. God is faithful to his promises because his promises are anchored to his sovereign choice, his purpose of election, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God's love towards us is not something that we earn. If, if I started this message by saying that, we would all say, amen, that's right. We don't earn the love of God. We don't deserve it. We sing about it. And then I think sometimes we fail to wrestle with what that really means. I deserve wrath. And yet he shows his love to me. And God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness to you is sure. Don't question that. Don't doubt that. Know that his faithfulness to you is sure because it's not anchored to you. It's anchored to him. So we're going to sing about the faithfulness of God. We're going to sing about the pardon for sin. We're going to sing about a peace that endures. We're going to sing about the fact that there's no shadow of turning in him. That God hasn't changed his, didn't change his mind about Jacob and he's not going to change his mind about us. Amen. Let's stand together.
Lord, um, I, I guess I feel the I don't know what what is it that we feel right now? Is it is it pause? Is it are we are we at that place where the Scripture says we come into Your presence and we let our words be few? Are we are we at that place that Isaiah was when he said, "Woe is me! I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips." Are, are, are we? Are we at the place that Nicodemus was and he saw this Jesus and he was enthralled with the things he was doing and the things he was saying and he comes to Jesus and says, hey Jesus, I know that you're from God and you stopped him, Jesus, and you just said, look, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom. I, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do what I can't and that is let the seed of your of the word of God bear fruit and increase in our souls and lead us to worship lead us even if it's conflicted worship even if it's God I'm not sure I don't know what to do with all of this I pray that if nothing else we would simply be in awe we would simply be in awe that you would love any of us and that we would find security we would find security knowing your promises are sure because your promises are anchored to you and not us and I thank you for this in Jesus name Amen We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message and we would love to hear from you Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.